the growth that we have within the city that is really putting a cramp on the existing space. So we already know here's a, the amount of space that we have. We have more students than we had in the past. Therefore, our places are really crowded. That's the voice of Dr. Flip Herndon, the Associate Superintendent of Operations and Facilities at Seattle Public Schools. And you'll hear more from him in today's episode of the Seattle Growth Podcast, which examines how Seattle's growth affects its public schools. Today's episode also features an in-depth interview with a former PTSA president and with a current high school teacher. Through this episode, you'll have a better understanding of the challenges facing teachers, parents, and school administration in accommodating the growing population in Seattle's schools. I'm your host of Seattle Growth Podcast, Jeff Schulman, and we are nearing the end of our 13-episode journey into the minds of residents, businesses, and city leaders about how Seattle's growth affects their lives. Previously on the Seattle Growth Podcast, we looked at how growth is affecting our city's hospitals. You heard from Dr. Susan Stern. When you're working in the emergency department and you see a significant increase in the number of patients who are really in need of additional social services, and it does take a toll a bit, but it challenges the system. There are times when there are no beds available in the city, in which case that patient may do what we call boarding in the emergency department. You heard from a Seattle nurse. I think Seattle, as it's growing in everything, you know, especially in tech, but it's becoming a hub for people who use substances. And so I'd say where I'd have like somebody who was coming in for care of some kind of injury related to intravenous drug use was like once a week. There's two out of five of my patients every time I work. You heard from the executive director of Harborview Medical Center, Paul Hayes. So at Harborview, we run, I would estimate somewhere between 95 and 100% occupancy, and usually a sweet spot for where everybody liked to land is around 85%. And you heard from Interim Executive Director of UW Medical Center, Jeff Austin. And the other uh, areas that we continue to work on is with our uh, governmental agencies to understand how, as we continue to expand our services throughout the region, how do we um, continue to look at the financing for those services, whether they're for long-term care and post-acute care services, uh, mental health. Um, we know that these are needs in the areas, and so looking at how do we work with our uh, state agencies to, to expand funding for those uh, highly needed services. Our city's hospitals are not the only resource facing capacity constraints as the city grows. Today, you'll hear firsthand accounts of how the schools are affected by the increased population. My first interview is with former PTSA president, Kirk Wollers. I am here with Kirk Wollers. Kirk is the former president of the PTSA at Seattle's Garfield High School. Kirk, thanks for joining me today. Happy to be here. Thank you. So why don't you start by telling me a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I've lived in the Central District of Seattle for about 20 years now. So moved to Seattle in 1994 and uh, raised our children uh, here in Seattle. They went through Seattle Public Schools, um, and I got involved in PTSA work about 10 years ago at, at, Garf or at uh, Washington Middle School. And then about uh, five years ago, I became the treasurer at, at Garfield High School in the PTSA, and then uh, two years ago, I was a co-president, and then this last year, I've been the president emeritus, so just kind of watching. So I have two children. Uh, one is a junior at, at UW, and one is a senior at Garfield right now. 
Tell me a little bit about Garfield High School. So Garfield is an interesting school. It's the AP school, uh, one of one of just, I think now two in Seattle. And what that means is that kids come from all around the city. So there's two ways to get into Garfield. One is you live in a geographic boundary, or secondly, you've tested in and are in this AP program. And because of that, they have quite a diverse group of students. They have students that uh, live in the area that, you know, have economic challenges and, and, and just happen to live in the area and go to Garfield. And then they have this advanced placement program where some kids will come from all around the city to go to Garfield. So a lot of times people say Garfield's two schools. There's a regular school and an advanced placement school. And one of the challenges for the PTSA and for the, uh, the principal there is to make it one Garfield. And that's a theme you'll hear a lot if you talk to anybody at Garfield. And so for those listeners who are not familiar with the role of the PTSA, can you describe it a little further? Yeah, sure. So the PTSA is the Parent-Teacher-Student Association, and uh, they're kind of common across the country. Um, but the role at Garfield is to advocate for the well-being of all the students of Garfield. And so that's kind of our mission statement. We raise a lot of money. Um, the PTSA raises about almost $250,000 a year. And we've done a lot of different things with the money. Number one, we've sponsored a reading and writing program. Um, for kids that need to come in that come into Garfield, but they're not at, at high school grade level for reading. That's a big program that's been done in the past. A counseling center. Um, let's see, we've raised money for some sports programs. Um, so a lot, a lot of different needs. But uh, yeah, so the P- and then and then we meet with the the administration and ask them what they want. Is there any advocacy we can do? You probably heard us in the news. We've been in. Uh, there's been controversy with the <laughs> choir teacher and and uh, field trips and all these kinds of things. So, I think what Garfield is unique at is that the parents are very well organized and they you know they they work to make sure the school's better for everybody. In the last five years, as Seattle has experienced rapid economic growth and mm-hmm. population growth, are there any changes that stand out? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things. Number one, um, the money we raise has been, um, we've, well, I guess during the downturn, if you will, in 09 and, and 10, um, we found that things were being cut a lot, right? Um, so we found that we had to raise more money. We, we, we gave a, or we, we raffled off a Tesla to raise money for the counseling center. Now I think that that's kind of balancing out. So the needs of the PTSA in terms of funding have, have gone down in terms of funding core things like teachers and, and curriculum. You know, the, the district isn't asking us for that. But um, so now our funding is going towards some different items. Um, more towards maybe alternative things. Um, but in terms of what economic has done, I think what it's done is is it's it's really driven a bigger wedge, I think, unfortunately, because I think that there's a lot of kids, there's a lot of haves and have-nots, and that's the neighbor, nature of the school here. So where we used to see uh, the diversity of the school uh, maybe not mean that much in terms of race and color, you know, but now I think the economic diversity is a much bigger factor because you've got kids that have BMWs and you've got kids that are walking to school. And so it's the divide is getting larger. Any other changes you've noticed? The growth, yeah. So the growth and the actual number of students has grown dramatically. So I think uh, the school is really designed to handle about 1,600 students. Um, but we've had a class, I think that there's one that's going to be 523 coming up. And then the projections coming in are uh, massive, right? So 2200, 2300. So, so it's just not, the school is not designed to handle, I mean, physically, there's no room for, for that many students. And then you have um, the issue of, of course, of class size, right? So, um, you know, 23, uh, 
would be great. 29 is where we are. 35 is what they're going to do. And then I think the other thing that, we, and this isn't really economic, but it's more about, you know, just the state mandate in education going to six classes a day for all the kids. That puts tremendous pressure on the teachers because they don't really have um, a study, an open period to, to prepare. So, so there's a big issue as to how, how this is going to all work, right? Because we've got to meet these standards, but at the same time, there's no time for the teachers to prepare. So um, I don't know if that's necessarily an economic issue, but that's just a, a growth factor and, and putting more pressure on, on, the, um, on the, the requirements. And so going back mm-hmm. into those numbers that you, you stated with the class sizes, when was it when your first child started at Garfield? In uh, 2009 was the first year. Um, so I think the class sizes were, they were probably similar, 27, 28, but... Um, you know, the, the hiring, it's just the classic thing, right? The, the number of teachers stays the same and the number of students grows. So, so what do we do? We put more pressure on teachers and, and classroom size. Projections are scary, right? Because of the influx of kids and the number of middle schools and downtown growing because downtown is, is a Garfield um, drawing factor. So every time another high rise goes up, you can just see, you know, there's 20, 30 more kids that are going to go to Garfield. <laughs> So what does that mean as a parent and as somebody involved with the health of the school to you as a parent and, and to the students themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's just natural. You're concerned that your kid's not going to get the attention that they need. Um, and so the kids that are going to get through Garfield and do well, are they're going to do well anywhere, right? But what you worry about is the kids that are going to fall through the cracks because one of the biggest problems that I think and is, is we have this homeless population that's growing. So when I started in 2000, 2009, I think there were, you know, maybe 50, 60, uh, what, what we call homeless or kids that, um, you know, they're, they're not, they, they don't really have a place to go. Right. And now, um, it's 140, I think. Um, so it's grown, it's almost tripled since we started this. And so, so that's a huge problem. And I was going to mention that earlier, the PTSA, we where where maybe before we were working on counseling and, and, uh, funding some teacher education, now our shift is like, look, look at this problem that's the economic diversity has created. Um, we need to help kids get lunch, right? We need to help kids have a place to, to sleep at night. And, and is that a core requirement of the PTSA? Maybe not. But, you know, if kids don't have a place to sleep and if they're hungry, they're certainly not going to learn. So we've, we've put that into our budget and, and going forward, that's a big shift. Before, we used to have a, um, a fun drive at, at Christmas, and or around the holidays and and uh we'd raise some money and hand out gift cards well now that need is becoming all year long and so the question is how do you administer that and and um and how can we help can is it socks and underwear or is it pens and pencils and backpacks or what can we do but um but it's a huge issue for the city and and for the school system and are there any other challenges that the growth has created for the PTSA or for the students? Security around the schools probably probably remained roughly the same, but commuting is a big nightmare as well because now you've got um, this year, next year they're going to move the class time up the starting time. It's I think it's seven forty-five if I should know this, but uh, uh, na- next year I believe it's going to go to nine a.m. Um, and there's two reasons for that, and this is something that the PTSAs across Seattle have been asking for is 
you know, high school students like to sleep in, right? Um, but if now they've got these commute times, right? If they're coming from, from Ballard or from the North End, you know, they might be an hour and 45 minutes, but, you know, it could be dramatic commute on the buses. And you've got the buses trying to get workers downtown. So, so this whole idea of, of getting to school has become a bigger issue with the growth. So that's a, that's a big problem. You said that there is a growing divide in terms of the economic and socioeconomic status of the students at Garfield. Sure. Mm-hmm. What effect does that have? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's, it's interesting. Like, I can tell you my own students, um, you know, my own children, they, they've gone to Garfield and, and had a very rich, diverse experience of a, of a, of a mixed class of students um, from all populations, um, black, white, Hispanic, uh, Asian, Indian, and then um, I think that that kind of changes because of the gentrification of the neighborhood. But I think, you know, the, the notion of the haves and have nots becomes more pronounced. Right. It's just it's just very clear. There's kids that live in Denny Blaine and there's kids that live in projects on Yesler and they all go to school together. And it's a beautiful thing to see them all get along. But boy, the divide gets bigger as kids are getting kicked out of their housing. And, and other, on the other hand, you know, they're buying second and third homes. Right. So. So I, I think it I think it makes a, an impact on the kids and, and also makes in some ways good because they they see it. I mean, they live it. And um, but but it definitely changes the, the uh, environment. Any opportunities that you've seen created because of the economic or population growth? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think one thing about Garfield is that uh, because it does so well nationally and can and has for a long time, um, you know, the extra funding that the, the PTSA is being able to bring in um, and, and also just the fact that I think the whole taxation base and the whole um, education, hopefully someday will be a priority for, for the state of Washington. But, um, you know, as those funds generally increase, which they should, it, it creates better opportunities. I mean, there, there may be a, a Latin program that might be on the bubble or, or they might cut. Now it's they, they realize the importance of it. So they're bringing it back. Um, so, yeah, so more new programs that, that are going to excite the students and uh, and get them into curriculums that we wouldn't have had um, are probably going to be become more available. As the economy has grown and the population has grown and the number of students at Garfield in particular has grown, have you seen an increase in donations to the PTSA? Yeah, we have actually uh, this year, for example, I think we raised almost $260,000. The money is there and people are willing to donate it and it is going up. So we are seeing a generous um a generous donation group, you know, maybe not uniform, because what's happening is a fewer number of people are donating more money, which is exactly what you'd expect with um, an economic divide. And then as you look forward to the next five years, and, and obviously your, your children are not going to be at Garfield yeah. any longer, uh, <laughs> but you still have a stake in that, that school itself. Mm-hmm. What do you see as the biggest changes on the horizon? And One of the biggest things that we see, um, ob- number one, population, right? So how are they going to handle all this, this influx of students? What are they going to, are they going to build portables and take out the football field? I mean, that's almost what has to happen unless they put a high school downtown, which they've talked about. Can you take a second to tell the person who doesn't have a, a child, maybe they don't have mm-hmm. a child in school, they certainly don't have a child in Garfield in particular, what is the value of a successful and thriving Garfield High School? 
Well, it's interesting. We we um, Garfield High School is the, is the the high school for Seattle. I mean, back for, you know, it was one of the first high schools. Um, so so we had a um, a meeting with we have an organization at Garfield called the Golden Grads, and the Golden Grads are people that have graduated fifty years ago or more, and uh, so they're all about seventy years old and up. And when you meet these people, you see that this is Seattle. I mean, these are the founders of the city. These are the people that, that built uh, Rainier Valley, that built downtown, um, that started all the businesses. That, uh, so, so to me, you know, you, you look at this group of people and you see, you see the city um, 50 years ago. And, and, and that's what's going to be in 50 more years. The kids that are there today are going to be the kids. A lot of them will stay right here. It's a great place to live. And this is this is the city they're going to give back to. So, so for Garfield to be a strong academic school um, is critical to to the success of Seattle in my mind. And, and so to achieve that, as we're seeing mm-hmm. all the challenges that you've stated, what do you feel Garfield needs to be able to continue to fulfill its promise to the Seattle? Yeah, I mean the teachers, right? So, so this is a big deal. Um, teachers can't afford to live in Seattle, right? And so. So we have great teachers that are coming in from, um, you know, far places north and south to teach at, at Garfield. Um, somehow we've got to we've got to co-fund their housing or something because we've got to have these teachers. They're the fuel to make it all happen. So um, I think that's another big challenge: is how are we going to con- continue to uh, to bring to to have the talented teachers that they have um, when you can't afford to live in the city? How many more students do you feel Garfield? can handle oh i think (laughs) i think 2000 is really pushing it right so um or even right now the kids don't i mean i think the lunchroom is is equipped for maybe maybe 300 i don't even think it could do that right so you're talking about 2000 kids and 300 so you have kids eating out on the lawn and in the rain and at ezels across the street so so yeah i mean it's already too full and that's so, already happening you're that's saying. already happening and that's happened the day that it opened right because it's just not a big enough place unfortunately any concluding thoughts on population growth and economic growth and how it affects Garfield. Yeah, I would just reemphasize, you know, we've got it. We've got to look at this holistically. You know, you've got the kids that are on the edges and we've got, they've, you know, they need to, they need to have a, a net and they need to have a place to come and, and they need to have the, the resources. Um, and then the, and the kids at the high end, you know, they need to be continually challenged and, uh, and have a, 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 a curriculum that that's difficult enough for them to, to succeed. So it's not an easy job. Uh, you know, I, I often talk to our, our principal there, Ted Howard, and, and to be able to get the kids on the edges and the, and the overachieving kids together, um, I guess I would just say continue the, continue the, the, the good work that's been done. And, and when the school comes together, the teachers and the parents with the district, that's when the, the good ideas come out. Kirk, thank you so much You're for welcome. your time and perspective. <laughs> really appreciate the opportunity to hear your voice here. Oh, great. Thank, thank you. you. Appreciate it. Still to come on this episode is an in-depth interview with the Seattle Public Schools Associate Superintendent of Operations and Facilities. He will share numbers on the growth of the school population and what it means for the future. But first, I sat down with Roosevelt High School teacher Liz McLennan. I am here with Liz McLennan. Liz is a teacher at Roosevelt High School. Liz, thanks for joining me today. You're welcome. Why don't you start by telling me a little bit about yourself? Well, I am department head of business technology and marketing at Roosevelt and I've been there about 18 years love it Uh, for those of people who are not familiar with where Roosevelt High School is 
Can you talk a little bit about where it is and and the socioeconomic and demographic class that it serves? That's really changed over the course of the time I've been here. And uh, because busing is gone, it's changed the demographics a lot, and it's increased, population's increased so much, it's crazy. Uh, it's very hard to get into Roosevelt. We've had a waiting list for the last five years that's pretty extensive. And it draws definitely from Roosevelt, Ravenna, Maple Leaf, Laurelhurst, View Ridge, and Montlake. And, you know, kids, some kids come because of certain special programs. Our STEM program is really strong. Some kids will come just because they want the music program or the drama program. And we're we're well known for languages and um our, I think our technology program's getting to be really strong now, but that's because the University of Washington's working with us. And um, I would say that we are pretty much similar to most of the private schools in that we don't have a whole lot of diversity at this point um, compared to what we did have. And it concerns me that, you know, it's real difficult when you don't have busing. That changes you know, and I, I, the the cost of property in the area is so high that it's pretty difficult to afford to live here. If you could recall, how has the enrollment at Roosevelt changed in the last five years? Well, we when we were we were moved temporarily to the Lincoln building so that they could renovate Roosevelt. That took two years, so we were out of our building for two years. So it dropped at that point, and then it's creeped up and up and up, and we never anticipated we'd have more than 1,700 like we do now. The halls are really crowded. And so what other ways do you see the effects of being up to 1,700 students? Well, certainly I would say the first thing would be the the hallways, which are packed. The stairwells, I feel uncomfortable in the stairwells, and I avoid going since passing time is five minutes, so they have to get from wherever their room is, the kids have to run. Lockers get jammed, and so when they have crowded halls, it's hard for kids to get in and out of a locker. Bathrooms are crowded. It's hard to get in and out of there and get you know in between classes and get to your class. Our librarian, I would think, would probably suggest, too, that we need to keep large libraries, but I think with the crowding that we have now, it's getting harder and harder to, to justify any spaces that aren't used to the maximum degree. So walk me through what it means as a teacher to have more students, whether it's more students in a single classroom at one time or take on an additional period so that you have more students total that you're seeing throughout the day. Well, we have a philosophy of differentiated instruction where we really look in evaluating teachers we're looking at teachers who can meet the needs of absolutely everyone in a unique way and it's almost like you have you have specialized customized learning programs for everyone so in order to do that skillfully in growing classrooms requires more and more energy more training, but I question whether they can do as good of a job if they're overworked. And so what does that mean for the students? If Well, stu- students of all ages need one-on-one attention and thrive from small groups and thrive from 
really, really skillfully, uh, you know, planned out classes. And it can be that you can do wonderful lectures, guided discussions in a big group some of the time, but you cannot expect students to be able to handle that in in a setting where, you know, it's lecture or discussion based who are from diverse backgrounds and may have different language needs and may need smaller group instruction more often. Also, teachers, many of them are teaching a, many diverse subjects so that if you have a teacher teaching, like I have four different preps, plus I have what's called administrative services, and in all of those different preps, you have to, there's an opportunity cost, and you have to expect those teachers time individually with students during lunch, which we all make time for, and before school and after school, we all make time for our students. And so they have, the students have to be flexible, adaptable, and willing to go the extra mile to come in to meet with teachers outside of classes because they don't get the one-on-one attention during the class. And then if they try, if they have sports after school, and now that um, school is going to be starting an hour later, we're probably going to be squeezed a little more. So you got to you gotta kind of do the math on that and figure out who your student population is. And at this point, Roosevelt, is, I think that they've felt like they could justify making it more crowded, partly because they're renovating our neighborhoods, you know, Lincoln School, they're renovating that one. So until students get in there, we're going to continue to grow the next couple of years and be bursting at the seams. If you could just summarize briefly what you feel are the main effects of economic growth on you and your school as an educator, what would you say? I'd say that Seattle is a high-tech city. Has There's been many corporations and public programs that have supported us as far as technology goes, providing computers and, and networking uh, support. And I think our partnerships with corporations, I think that they should continue to grow. I work very hard to keep my relationships with through junior achievement, which I love because they actually have a relationship. They're, they're like ombudsmen between all the corporations and businesses and the schools. So they offer so, so much support in a flexible way that's, that's grassroots where they partner people up and it matches well and you link people up that are, that want to do projects together and, that way, I think what you do is it's more sustainable rather than putting something in place with uh, temporary support that might be for a couple of years and then withdrawing your support like Cisco did, for example. Cisco had all these requirements and made you team teach. And then when they pulled out all of their support and funding, we didn't have a way to continue to grow. And technology, you know, grows, you know, constantly and you, you just, there's no point in putting a program in place that has, that isn't more flexible than that and sustainable. Any concluding thoughts? Well, just that education is always complex partnership between the business world, families, and professional educators and 
I think that you can't you can't really be an outstanding district if you don't promote those partnerships. I think that we should do everything that we can to let parents into the schools and make sure that you make that pipeline from each level in the schools, from the elementary, middle to high school and beyond, that that pipeline is smooth and adaptable and scalable. Liz, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you sharing your perspective. My pleasure. My final interview in today's episode is with Dr. Flip Herndon. Dr. Herndon is the Associate Superintendent of Operations and Facilities at Seattle Public Schools. Why don't we start by having you tell me a little bit about yourself and your role here. So my role here, Associate Superintendent of Operations and Facilities, and that means overseeing uh, many of the operational functions of the school district. So that would be everything from construction, enrollment planning, maintaining the buildings, Kind of the big umbrella of operations also includes things like transportation and food services, nursing services, all of that. But those departments all uh, report to different people. Ideally, it's basically how do we support our students in an environment that makes them feel safe, secure, and very conducive to education. It's kind of most of the things uh, besides the teaching and learning aspect and we take that very seriously. Um, we obviously have some challenges with the growth here in Seattle, and we see that um, continuing to be an, an issue for us. Personally, this is my third year working in Seattle. I've worked in a lot of other school districts, four other ones uh, here in the state of Washington, also in um, Connecticut, New Jersey, uh, originally from Tacoma. You said that growth is impacting your role here. Can you assess the impact of Seattle's recent growth on the public schools? Yeah, so over the last um, six or seven years, we've seen an increase of um, probably about 6,500 students over that amount of time. So when you look at an average, it's, a, it's about a thousand students a year that we've been seeing in the growth, and, and that's quite a bit. We presently have 98 buildings that serve all of those students. The growth is a bit uneven. It's not always in the same areas. Uh, Not all parts of the city are grown at the same rate. I think if you were to drive around the city, you would see where all the cranes are and the projects um, that are being built. And they vary, clearly. Um, You know, you have everything from apartment complexes that could be 200 units or 300 units to um, townhomes where there had been a single resident. Now there are four townhomes. So we see some of that as well. Uh, A lot of the higher concentration of growth is really kind of in the north end of the city in the central area. Although the north end of West Seattle also has quite a bit of growth going on there. And the way in which we have been trying to respond is through capital levies that are either replacing or renovating our buildings and expanding the classroom offerings that we have there. You said it's an uneven and fairly dramatic increase in the number of students who are coming. How well would you say that historically or in the last five years that that the Seattle Public Schools has been uh, equipped to address these? Well, um, usually being able to address that comes in a, a couple of different approaches. One is trying to project the number of students that are coming in. So trying to be accurate with our numbers. Historically, Uh, On aggregate, looking at uh, the number of students that are coming in, our projections have been pretty good. Last year, we were a little bit off uh, by about 1%. But in previous years, 
out of 50,000 students, we were off by maybe 100, less than 200 students, which is pretty darn close, a fraction of a percent. All that being said, though, the students don't always come in even and predictable grades. So even if we are projecting that uh, school A, let's say, is going to have an enrollment of 500, and based on that enrollment, we say, okay, so for 500 students, we're going to need 25 classrooms. Well, they could lose students at, let's say, three grade levels and gain an equal number of students at one grade level. So the loss at three grade levels may not be enough to lose a classroom or to shift, but the gain of students all at one grade level could require an additional classroom. So even if the projection is 100% correct, depending on the grade levels that the students enter in, it could require more space or it might allow for a little more breathing room but our challenges have been many of our schools don't have classrooms that can be converted we have students that are either in portables or classes happening in some hallways or up on stages in the cafeteria places that were not originally designed to be classrooms that and we have many many older buildings that have um, especially at the elementary level small cafeterias very small gymnasiums and it makes it inadequate to be able to have enough students in lunch, let's say, so it extends either the lunch hour because you have multiple lunches that are happening, or in physical education, you can really only have one class in there at a time, and it's just a too small of an environment. And so what plans are underway to address this issue of portables and people learning in hallways and so on? So through the capital levies that we have been able to pass, uh, thanks to the generous support of voters in Seattle, um, we have been expanding and renovating several schools through the cycle. So many of our capital levies are on a six-year cycle. Uh, BEX-4, as an example, um, BEX-4, which BEX stands for our Building Excellence Program, was passed in 2013. It was a $700 million levy. Um, with that, it, it encompasses investments in technology, so computer equipment for students and infrastructure support, uh, academics, which is supporting some of the online assessments, and then the big pieces are addressing backlog maintenance issues, things like repairing roofs and having seismic bracing in older buildings to make sure they meet the seismic code, to expansion or replacing of up to seven, in BEX4, 17 buildings. So. This spring, or sorry, this September, we actually have five renovated or new schools opening. Next uh, September 2017, we have six additional schools being replaced or opening. Um, and they, they're all over the place. So we just have a ton of projects that are opening to try and meet the needs, and we know we need even more seats. Uh, it doesn't address all of the issues. Um, so we're trying to address them as quickly as we can. But the, the challenge of that is that because you see all the cranes, because you see all the other construction going on, it, the, the construction market is very competitive. So, you know, and we don't have a lot of interim sites where when we are rebuilding or renovating a school, we can't always do that on site with students in the building. So they have to go to an interim site while, there's, while their building is either being renovated or replaced. And we just don't have that many sites available. So we have to really plan these out in stages and 
shuffle schools to the interim sites while we're rebuilding or, reven or renovating. And as you look to the future, how do you develop your forecasts as to how many more students are going to be coming over the next, say, five years? Yeah, it's, uh, we look at uh, several variables. One is um, we do look at historical trends. So what have the past few years been showing us? We also look at we, what we call the birth decay capture rate, which is number of births that we know in the hospitals that are around here five years, from, five years previous. So that should tell us how many kindergartners we're looking at. And in each area, we have an idea about the percentage of those births that actually enroll in Seattle Public Schools. So that gives us some idea about a trend line that we're looking at. Now, clearly, there are plenty of children born in Seattle hospitals that, you know, they, don't, they might not live here, but this is the hospital where they were born and they move somewhere else. But we try and look at those trends. The other is we do look at enrollment trends of students who are transferring in or out to surrounding school districts. So maybe they're going to Renton or Highline or Shoreline, Bellevue. So we take a look at what those trends might be. Um, and we look at our retention rate of students that are also there. Are we getting any out migration to homeschool or private schools? For some, we know there are thousands and thousands of students in Seattle who have never enrolled in Seattle Public Schools. They've either been homeschooled the whole time or they've been in private school the whole time. We don't really have data on them because they've never been a student. But for the folks who have actually enrolled in Seattle Public Schools, we really try and track, are we keeping them? Are they moving? Do they move and then come back to us? Several trends that way. Um, so, and we've been seeing that trend go up. And then clearly, as we look at the growth in residential units that are being built within the city, we try and look at price points um, and what the average yield is for students at particular price points and the number of multifamily versus single family houses. So several factors. And so does new development make it more challenging to predict accurately or, or easier in the sense that you kind of know what, how many units are being created and what they're for? Well, it can. The challenge with that is that, uh, one, we want to make sure we're maintaining our communications with the city so we have an idea about what units are in the pipeline and being planned. So when we do that, we have a full-time demographer that works within our department and coordinates with the city demographer as well and the planning department. So we have a good idea about the number of projects that are coming online. But the um, projects can sometimes be stalled. Now, right now, my guess is developers have good interest rates, so they're able to actually follow through with the permitting of projects that happen. But if we were to look six years ago, seven years ago, before the economic collapse, there was a ramp up too of a lot of projects, then the financing all went out. So a lot of those projects either didn't happen or they've been delayed. So it's hard for us to, to be very precise about when those units come online and the pricing may change. So we may go into that now saying, okay, we probably expect in this particular area of the city that multifamily, you know, a, a three bedroom uh, condo in this area is gonna come in at $580,000. Well, two years when it actually comes online, the price point could have jumped way up and that may change the dynamic of who's actually moving into that unit. So, you know, we're always a little bit behind on the curve on that just because the information is fairly dynamic. And can you describe a little bit of what your forecasts actually are for the next couple of years? Well, again, we see growth. Um, we, I, I'm not sure if we'll continue at the thousand students per year. 
Last year, we didn't grow by that much. We only grew by about 400 students. The year before that, it was 800. The year before that, it was 1,200. So we don't know if that's a trend that is, are we more down, you know, kind of on the, the more conservative side? This year, I believe we're projecting about a 700 student growth. So we modified that from um, a year ago when we only grew by 400 students, we were projecting to grow by about 1,000. So we we're off by about 600 students. Um, so we don't want to be off by that much. It has implications on budget and capacity planning and staffing and all of that. So we want to make sure that we're responding as much as possible. Um, but just like any budget forecast or any enrollment forecast, you've got a forecast and you have the actuals. So our actuals are when school starts, there's an official uh, state count date of October 1, and that's what we compare year over year is the October 1 count, what does that look like? So we're still projecting an upward trend. Um, I don't think it's gonna be as steep, but there could be other economic impacts that we're not seeing right now that change the market and could have an influence on families and whether or not they enroll in Seattle Public Schools. Can you describe how nimble Seattle Public Schools is to expand or to shrink as necessary in terms of the uh, number of seats that are in actual classrooms? Yeah, the, so there are two ways in which we approach that. One is the brick and mortar approach, which when you build a building, have the number of seats that are in there, um, classrooms are built, you know, walls are erected, doors are put in, and we have building codes that we have to adhere to in order to make all of that happen. If you need to expand, there are two ways. You can either do a renovation of the building and add a wing, or you could do some sort of um, uh, interim solution. So that could come in the form of portables, which is a solution many people look to, um, or you might look at another alternative method of, you know, putting something else up, like pre-constructed pieces that are kind of in between a portable and large brick and mortar. The challenge with that, though, is that there are city codes that we still have to meet. Lot coverage issues, what's called master use permit, or SEPA Environmental Protection Act uh, impacts on a site. So if you increase the number of students who might be on site, it changes sometimes the master use permit or the environmental impact because there could be more traffic, more students, more lot coverage, more water runoff, less water runoff. And expanding is uh, definitely a challenge and expensive, but also uh, contracting is expensive. In the past, the way Seattle had responded to contraction was um, not necessarily going by site, but you could look at a region and then close or mothball a school in which case you would either lease it out or you could sell it. Seattle has done both, leased out properties and sold it. Then that gives you the opportunity that when you need that building back again because you're growing, um, you can open that building back up, do some renovation, have to bring it up to current codes. We're doing that in several buildings. So we do have a number of buildings that we're looking to um, reopen. But even with that, we need more space. Uh, purchasing land in Seattle is obviously very expensive. We uh, made a run at the Federal Reserve, the former Federal Reserve building, which was on Second and Union, and we weren't able to purchase that. That went through an auction process through the federal government, but um, it was out of our price point. And then on top of purchasing either land or buildings, you've got the renovation costs to actually turn it into a school. As the Seattle City Council and the mayor's office is looking to 
build density and, and do some up zones or change the zoning. What challenges does that create for you? And maybe more specifically, once that happens and there's more density in a particular region, what's your timeline for how quickly you'll be able to address that? So very good question. Um, again, in many of the areas, we already have some schools. Some may have been renovated and the size of the buildings and lots that we have vary. So you can have a location like Ingram High School that's located on 17 acres. Got a lot of facilities to go along with it. You can also have uh, some of our lots that are a small, uh, smaller than three acres, which makes it a real challenge to try and construct or put a building on site that's gonna still meet the needs. So that's one of our biggest challenges that we have is you know, just kind of dealing with the site. Another uh, challenge that we have is we have a landmarks board that landmarks some of our buildings, so then it makes it even more difficult to really get the most efficient use out of the site because we're dealing with basically an immovable object. So when the city is doing some rezoning or upzoning or increasing density, we of course want to be able to respond with a modification to the schools. Typically our timeline from planning to opening doors is anywhere between two and a half and three years. And that's assuming that we have the dollars that go with it. So if we know that that's coming and we have an upcoming capital levy, then we go through the process of saying, okay, how many of the schools can we get under this amount of money from the levy? And then what's the timeline? So we can't do them all at one time. You know, we had 17 schools that we're doing in BEX4, sorry, in 2013. But the last of those projects start in 2021. So it can be a 10-year timeline of production or construction from the time that a, a levy is improved. It might be a decade until you actually see that project underway. What's the lag from when somebody moves here to when you're able to start counting that, the money towards your budget? Well, it's not really our budget. I mean, the taxes get, well, for us, the taxes are collected for the levies via a rate. So when we go out for a levy, it's actually for a set amount. So $700 million back in 2013 was assessed on the valuation of all of the property within Seattle that fits within the tax levy district. And so if the, the valuation or the taxable land actually increases in value, it drives the rate down for everybody else. So we're not actually collecting any additional money. It just means that everybody else's tax rate goes down a little bit. And then when we go out for another levy, so because we have these in successive years, it does allow for the ability to collect more money at about the same tax rate. You know, really when new, new construction is happening or there's new development that's happening, it helps immediately with some of the tax rate, but it can help for the future levies because it'll allow the collection of more money. And that's true not just of residents, clearly, but also office space and building and things like that. There are tax-exempt buildings that, that, that wouldn't be paying taxes on that. But for the most part, yeah, when we see a lot of development, we know that that's increasing the tax base and the valuation within the city. Just to summarize, an increase in, in, in businesses and people doesn't actually give you more money. It's only once people realize their rate is lower because of all those people that you can now ask for the more money a couple of years down the road. Time. Correct. Can you just describe what kind of challenge this process creates for you in addressing new growth? Yeah. I mean, so because there is a little bit of that lag time for us, that's, that's our biggest challenge is we've got really two issues that we try and tackle. Well, three that are really challenging us right now. One is the growth that we have within the city. 
that is um, really putting a cramp on the existing space. So we already know here's a, the amount of space that we have. We have more students than we had in the past. Therefore, our places are really crowded. That's uh, issue number one. Issue number two is that we also have lower class size that's coming from the state. So even with the same number of students, the expectation is I don't want to see 34 students in one classroom with two adults. I want to see 17 students in this classroom and 17 students in that classroom, which is also necessitating more space for us to have. Two years ago when we did the initial uh, calculation for the number of classrooms we would need, that was back when Seattle had about 51,000 students. Right now we have 53,000. To get to the K-3 K class size ratio of 17 to 1, Seattle at that time would have needed 350 additional classrooms. That's about 10 additional elementary schools. We only have maybe four schools, elementary schools, that were being leased, so we're taking many of those back and reopening them. That would leave six additional sites that we would have to be brand new schools. And one, the land to be able to get that. Two, the tax dollars then from a levy to be able to build those. Average price right now for us to build an elementary school is about $40 million. That's without land acquisition. Um, and again, a two and a half to three year timeline to get that done. The third challenge on the tax levies on how we spend is then our crumbling infrastructure of buildings that are really old. We have buildings that are almost 100 years old. They're inadequate. The cafeterias are small. The hallways are cramped. The classes are 500 or 600 square feet, whereas our new buildings, the classroom is 900 square feet. You know, the gymnasium is tiny. It's 2,000 square feet. Our ed spec for elementaries now is almost 6,000 square feet. So when we have roofs that are failing or inefficient mechanical systems, heat in many of the buildings is driven by a single boiler. So you can't just heat up this room. You have to fire up the boiler for the entire building, which is very inefficient. So we're trying to address all those issues at one time. And that's our biggest challenge that we're looking at as far as the actual facilities and the structures go. What neighborhoods or areas in Seattle do you feel are most stretched thin at, at the moment? Uh, again, kind of the areas that we were talking about, the north part of West Seattle, um, the central area, so pretty much everything north of the Ship Canal Bridge, almost all those buildings are, are really maxed out. We see the development happening in Ballard, Northeast uh, uh, University District, you name it. I mean, it, it's pretty much all over the place. And we've talked a little bit about challenges. Are there reasons for optimism as oh, you look yes. to the future? Absolutely. Um, one is that um, I think the community of Seattle has been extremely supportive of public schools, and that's a great feeling to have. We don't take any of that for granted. I don't take the fact that a levy's coming up and it's going to pass for sure. Not at all. We work very hard to try and educate voters to make sure they understand what they're voting for, and two, that we deliver on the past promises. So in these levies that we have right now, we've said we're gonna build this school and this school and this school. We wanna make sure we're delivering those projects on time and on budget as much as possible. Um, the other is, I think the fact that we're growing as a city and a school district is an excellent sign that people are willing to invest in their schools, have faith in their schools, are enrolling their children in the schools. I have three myself, three children, they're all enrolled in Seattle Public Schools. Um, so having our citizens make that choice to invest in their public schools and trust us with their children 
is a huge sign for optimism. I've been in districts with declining enrollment, and that's, that's a challenge <laughs> in the other way. So the fact that people are, are choosing Seattle um, is an excellent sign, and I'd rather have this challenge of trying to find space than closing schools because we're losing enrollment and you know we're, we're, just, we're losing staff, we're losing enrollment. That's not where we wanna be. We're adding staff now, we're building new schools, we're renovating schools. All of that is really optimistic, and I hope we continue to grow as a city. I think it's a, a fantastic sign of a healthy environment, healthy economy, um, and hopefully a city that loves its schools and loves its communities. I want to give you a chance to, one, get a message out to the people of Seattle as to what they could do to help Seattle Public Schools achieve their mission, and a chance to give you a concluding thought. I would say um, to continue to communicate with us and let us know what our challenges are, what the challenges you see with Seattle Public Schools. We love to hear feedback from the community. So if they like what they see too, they can let us know that as well. So it doesn't always have to be, oh, we have all these problems. It's also, thank you for building the school. We really enjoy it. We love it. We want to see you know our students do well. So um, that's what I really want our community to be able to engage with us and for us to engage with them. And, and hopefully we're able to meet in the middle and meet the needs of all of our students. Um, the other was, what's the other? Do you have any concluding thoughts? Any concluding on... thoughts? I think growth is a very positive thing. I know for some people, the densifying of Seattle is a, is a real challenge because Seattle is, is a big city and it's becoming a bigger city. And if you haven't lived in a really dense city, um, the changes can sometimes be very uncomfortable and, and a challenge for people who aren't used to that. But that is the reality of where we're headed. The city is becoming more dense. More people want to live here. And um, I think instead of uh, erecting fences, I think we need to erect some gates to let people in and, and uh, just really enjoy the city. I, it's a wonderful place to live. Beautiful, obviously. I think the people are great. And um, I hope everybody loves the city just like we all do. Thank you so yeah. much for your time and your perspective. Really appreciate it. Nice Thank to you. meet you. Yeah. You have now heard from a parent, a teacher, and an administrator about what Seattle's growth means for its public schools. Now, I want to hear from you. Share your thoughts about the city's schools using hashtag Seattle Schools. In the next episode, we will explore a topic on everyone's minds, transportation. You'll hear from John Creighton of the Port of Seattle Commission. Eventually, we're going to have a downturn, but just the trend lines are still up and up and up. So I really think with the length of time it takes this region to plan major infrastructure, we need to start looking now at a second regional airport to handle all this growth. You will hear from Scott Kubley, the director of Seattle Department of Transportation. Seattle has only 30% of people coming into the center city drive alone. 31% of people coming into the center city drive alone. And that's because we have a really good bus network. Uh, we encourage van pools. We have a really good travel demand management program that in, that helps people uh, identify and use modes other than driving alone. I hope you will join me next week. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes and subscribe if you haven't already. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman, for more updates. As we are nearing the end of the 13-episode journey that is the Seattle Growth Podcast, I want to be sure to thank a few people who've been instrumental along the way. Of course, I want to thank all of my guests for participating in this conversation. I again want to thank John Kaib for working some audio magic behind the scenes. I want to thank Mike Bosey, Ed Cromer, Victor Balta, and Andrew Kruger for helping to spread the word about the Seattle Growth Podcast. And I want to thank all of you for listening and for joining the conversation about Seattle's future.